We are studying tonight the fourth article of the Belgic Confession, which you'll find on page 53 in the Three Forms of Unity. Canonical books of the Holy Scripture. We believe that the Holy Scriptures are contained in two books, namely the Old and the New Testament, which are canonical, against which nothing can be alleged. These are thus named in the Church of God. The books of the Old Testament are the five books of Moses, to wit, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the book of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, the two books of Samuel, the two of the Kings, two books of the Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, the Psalms, the three books of Solomon, namely the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs, the four great prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and the twelve lesser prophets, namely Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Those of the New Testament are the four evangelists, to wit, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Acts of the Apostles, the 13 epistles of the Apostle Paul, namely one to the Romans, two to the Corinthians, one to the Galatians, one to the Ephesians, one to the Philippians, one to the Colossians, two to the Thessalonians, two to Timothy, one to Titus, one to Philemon. Hebrews, the seven epistles of the other apostles, namely one of James, two of Peter, three of John, one of Jude, and the revelation of the apostle John. Uh, brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, when we talk about the idea of the canon, um, or w what the um, article calls the canonical books of the New Testament, we, that is a, a way of referring to the books that we confess uh, are inspired by God. That is, those books which are found in our Bible and which belong to a class by themselves. All other books in the whole history of the world have their origins in the uh, imaginations of men, but these books have their origins in the work of God and of his Holy Spirit. And when we talk about the canon, therefore, we mean those 66 books which the Belgic Confession lists in Article 4. Now this question about the canon has become today uh, a somewhat more important question, again, than it was in the past. Partly that's due to the discovery in the last 75 or 100 years of additional uh, very ancient writings which some would like to add to the canon. Uh, there is, for example, the Gospel of Thomas. But this is also due, the importance of this question is also due to the fact that there have been some in uh, the recent years who have again mounted an attack on the canon, either wanting, not only necessarily wanting to add books to the canon or take books away from the canon, but to attack the very idea of the canon that there 
can even be such a thing as a set of writings which are specifically inspired by God to distinguish them from other men. And so it's, uh, I think, fairly important that we know something about this whole subject of the canon again. And when, when you look at the Belgic Confessions uh, statement on the canon of the scriptures, you'll see immediately, of course, that it's a, a very bare-bones kind of statement. It lists the canonical books, the 66 canonical books that we have in our Bibles, and it makes clear that nothing should be added to that list and nothing should be taken away from that list. These are the inspired books, the Confession says. And it says one more thing, that nothing can be alleged against them. But even that does not really seem, I think, to have anything to do with the canon itself. I don't think that the confession means that nothing can be alleged against that list to say that some books do not belong there or other books should be there. But I think what the confession is saying, nothing can be alleged against the content of those books. So I think what the confession is saying there is that these books are inspired books, that they are the Word of God, the subject we talked about last week. What the confession does not say is why we should consider these books, all these books, and these only to be canonical. And so I want to, this afternoon, go a little bit beyond what our confession says, and I'm going to be uh, beginning, anyway, with uh, a statement uh, from this book of Michael Kruger called Canon Revisited, Establishing the Origins and Authority of the New Testament Books. And I think that uh, the basic argument uh, that he makes in this book is that we believe these books and these only to be canonical because these books reveal themselves to be canonical. That is the source of our, uh, our knowledge about the canon is the canon itself. He uh, quotes from John Calvin on page 98 where Calvin says scripture is clearly crammed with thoughts that could not be humanly conceived. Let each of the prophets be looked into. None will be found who does not far exceed human measure. Consequently, those for whom prophetic doctrine is tasteless ought to be thought of as lacking taste buds. So, Calvin is basically saying that we know that the scriptures are canonical, we know that they are from God, because they could not possibly have been humanly conceived. The thoughts of the prophets and the apostles far exceed human measure. And Kruger refers also to the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, the fifth paragraph there, which says basically the same thing, though in very different words. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverend esteem of the Holy Scripture. Notice that it 
talks about the church, the testimony of the church there, but especially note this, and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. So the Westminster Confession also says we know the word of God from the word of God. We know the canonical books from the canonical books themselves. But of course the Scriptures do not give us a list of canonical books anywhere. The evidence is not of that sort. The evidence is rather in the content of the books themselves, in the things that the books say, in the things that the books reveal to us. And so, just as with any other doctrine of the Scriptures, it was necessary for the church to study the Scriptures in this regard, and from the scriptures then to learn about the canon, to learn what were the inspired books. Uh, Most of it was settled very early in the history of the church, much of it even before the apostles died. Peter talks about the writings of the apostle Paul in 2 Peter 3, um, basically as authoritative writings, as writings which have come from God. There were only a a few books which uh, took longer for the church to recognize as canonical books like 2 Peter, 2 3 John, James, and Revelation, and so on. That took until about the 4th century or into the 4th century. But we should recognize that that's the same with any of the doctrines of the scriptures. The church did not, for example, immediately uh, fully define the doctrine of the Trinity. It took until the Council of Nicaea in 325 for the church fully to define the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the last things was a doctrine that was really not developed until uh, the 19th century and is still, I think we could say, being uh, developed and being more fully understood even today. And the same is true with the canon, though the scriptures reveal to us which writings we should consider to be canonical, reveal themselves to us as canonical, it takes some time then for the church, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, to recognize what the Spirit is teaching us. Now, in his book, then, Canon Revisited, Michael Kruger argues that we should are able to recognize the canon, first of all, based on the apostolic origins. He's talking about the New Testament, of course. The Old Testament is a much uh, uh, easier matter to settle because of the fact that Jesus and his disciples, his apostles, accepted the Old Testament as canonical from the beginning. But with regard to the New Testament, we recognize, first of all, the importance of apostolic origins, that is, that these writings were uh, the writings of the apostles 
or of those who were closely associated with the apostles. And that should not surprise us. The uh, Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2 that the church's foundation is the apostles and prophets. They are the foundation. And the apostles were not the foundation of the church only in the sense that they were the first ones to preach the gospel and to found churches in the New Testaments. They were not the first, only the first ones to begin to preach verbally the, the word of God to the Gentiles and so on. But their teaching and their writing, especially their inspired record of the teaching, is the foundation of the church. This written record of the teaching of the apostles is what Paul is particularly referring to, in fact. The apostolic origins, therefore, is one argument. We consider in connection with this whether a book was written by the apostles or whether it was written by those closely associated with the apostles. A second way we uh, uh, discover the Uh, canon is by looking for the divine qualities, and there was some reference to this, in fact quite a lengthy reference to this in the Westminster Confession, that paragraph that we read, the, the beauty and perfection of the canonical books. And, and here I, I think we may uh, refer to the other part of God's revelation. God revealed himself in the creation, and we look at the creation and we say about that creation, this is so wonderful, so beautiful, so complex, so re revelatory of wisdom that we cannot conceive of this creation coming into being by accident or by merely natural processes. It must have come into being by the work of God. And we look at the scriptures and we have the very same reaction, or we should have the very same reaction. We look at the beauty and perfection of the scriptures and we say, this could not have come into being by the, uh, the mere work of men. This has to be the work of God himself. We look at the majesty of the style, which uh, the confession speaks of, the, the majesty of the content, really, of the scriptures, of the God who is exalted above heaven and earth, who is to be feared, who has done great and marvelous works. And we say, these are not the kinds of works which men could have imagined could take place. These are works which only could have come from the mind of God himself. We look at how the scriptures speak of the uh, way of salvation throughout. And we say, here we see the hand of God at work in the history of the world to redeem for himself a people, God talking about what he has done. We look at prophecy and we say, the prophecy of the scriptures, which has been, some of which has been fulfilled for us, Old Testament prophecy as well as New Testament prophecy. We've seen them fulfilled. Only God could have spoken such prophecies. We look at the power and the efficacy of the scriptures. The scriptures have uh, changed the lives of hundreds of thousands, even millions since the beginning of their writing. But the particular point that I want to focus on tonight is the unity and harmony of the scriptures. That is that the scriptures reveal uh, in their content 
a unity of teaching, a harmony of teaching, which could not have come from men. They were written over an enormous period of time, roughly 1,500 years, by a huge variety of men in different places to different audiences with different uh, purposes in mind. They are very different in their, in their uh, uh, content and in their style. You have uh, poetry, you have history, you have letters, you have uh, prophecy, you have all these different kinds of writing by all these different kinds of men over the enormously uh, expansive time but it all teaches the same thing. There's all this uh, consistency within the scriptures of teaching that reveals that this was not the ideas of men, but this was the very word of God. The unity and harmony of the scriptures then is the point that I especially want to emphasize Tonight, what Kruger, in fact, in his book calls the redemptive historical unity of the scriptures. And in order to get at that, I want to focus on the idea of the covenant. The covenant, that is, the promise of God to his people regarding their redemption. It is in that covenant that we see this redemptive historical unity, that we see this unity of teaching in the scriptures. It's not the only area where we see it, but it's, I think, especially here in this um, matter of the covenant that we see this unity, which could only have come from God. But before we get to the review of this idea of the covenant in the scriptures, there some background information, I think, that we have to be reminded of. We're very familiar with this, but it's uh, information that's necessary to understand how the covenant fits into the scriptures. First of all, then, we have to understand, as Genesis 1 teaches us, that God created the world, and that he created man in the world, and that he gave to man in the world dominion and commanded him to subdue the earth and to cultivate the garden. And he brought man into the garden, not only to cultivate it, but also to live in fellowship with him. So he created man to be his friend-servant. Living with him, having fellowship with him, but also bringing the whole of the creation under his dominion into the service of God. That's the first point that we have to have as the background to this idea of the covenant. The second point is then that we fell into sin. We rebelled against this uh, position that God had given us in his creation. We fell from our original righteousness We decided that we wanted to be like God. We disobeyed his commandment and we tried to dethrone him and set ourselves up in his place. We then, therefore, lost our original righteousness. We lost our uh, glory and honor as God had given it to us in our creation. 
That's the second fact. The third fact is that God, immediately after that fall, began to redeem the creation, as Paul teaches us in Romans 8, and began to redeem to himself also a people from the fallen human race. So you have the fact of creation and man's creation, you have the fact of the fall, and you have the fact of God immediately beginning a work of redemption of the creation and of men from the fallen human race. And the fourth fact, then, is that God did this work of redemption, began this work of redemption by means of covenant. That is, by making and fulfilling promises to his people. And this, then, this idea of the covenant runs through the whole of the scriptures, and gives to us the idea that we're trying to get at, the the unity and harmony of the Scriptures. That covenantal idea is one of the ideas that binds the whole of the Scriptures together, shows us that there is a one work of God that is going on throughout the whole history of the world, through all these different writers, and through all these different ages of the world, God working out his covenant. That covenant then has a history in the world. and That's what we're going to trace here now. Very briefly. The first uh, covenant that God made with men is found in Genesis chapter 3, Verse 15. The word covenant is not used there, but this partakes of the nature of covenants as they are taught us in the scriptures. And really, one of the striking things about this covenant is that God spoke the words of this covenant to the serpent. And what he spoke to the serpent was a threat against the serpent, but And being a threat against the serpent was a promise to his people. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now notice there a couple of things. First of all, God says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her her seed. He divides the seed of the woman, and the seed of the serpent. He separates the human race into two parts, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This is what he says he is going to do. And we see that work of God in separating the human race into two parts happening already in the very next chapter with the story of Cain and Abel. Cain was of the seed of the serpent, Abel was of the seed of the woman, Cain killed Abel. And why did he kill him, 1 John says? He killed him because his own works were evil and his brothers were righteous. This idea of the conflict then between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is the 
underlying theme of the whole history of the world, the fundamental history of the world is the history of the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And we see that conflict work being worked out throughout the whole of the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments. So that's, that's the first element of that covenant that God made. The second element is that this is a seed. He talks about the seed between your seed and her seed. And ultimately, that seed of the woman is not just believers, the elect out of every nation, tribe, and tongue, but is Christ himself. God is going to put enmity not just between believers and unbelievers then, but he's going to put enmity between Christ and Satan. We see that in Revelation chapter 12 where John had the vision of the woman uh, in travail, giving birth to a son, and the great dragon standing by, ready to devour her child as soon as it was born. But God snatching that child up to heaven to keep that child safe from the dragon's threats. That's about the incarnation, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the seed of the woman. And we see, thirdly, in this, that God is going to give the victory in this great conflict to the seed of the woman. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Satan will receive a mortal wound, but not the seed of the woman. Now we call this promise of God then the mother promise. By mother promise we don't just mean that it's the first promise of God, but that in a very real sense this promise begets all the covenants, all the promises that follow. That all the covenants and promises of God that follow are inherent really in this this covenant, this promise of God. So there are covenants that follow, promises of God that follow this promise. But all of those covenants are, if you want, uh, explanations of, further developments of the Initial, the mother promise. Out of the acorn of Genesis 3, verse 15, grows the mighty oak tree of God's glorious covenant with his people. The first time we actually read about covenant in the scriptures is found in Genesis chapter 8 and 9. Genesis chapters 8 and 9, especially Verse uh, chapter 8. After the flood, God came to Noah. God said to Noah, uh, I'm going to give you a promise. I will never again destroy the earth with a flood. That was the promise that God spoke then. 
And he added to that also, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. And God gave to Noah then, as a sign of this covenant, the rainbow, which is a sign that remains for us today. Every time we see a rainbow, we should be reminded of this promise of God to Noah. I will never again destroy the earth with a flood. But as you look at the scriptures and the scriptural commentary on this um, covenant of God with Noah, you find that really this goes uh, far beyond that mere promise not to destroy the world again with a flood. Jesus refers to God's covenant with Noah in Matthew 24, verses 37 to 39. He says, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So he takes that, that time of Noah and he says, There's going to be another time like that. The time of the coming of the Son of Man. It's a time of great wickedness. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So he says there's going to come this other, another time of great wickedness. And just as in the days of Noah they were eating and drinking and ignoring the possibility of ruin, the, the, the inevitability of ruin because of their wickedness, so in the last days men will be eating and drinking and making merry and ignoring the inevitability of ruin, ruin until the coming of the Son of Man. And when he comes, then their destruction will come. Just as God destroyed the world in Noah's day, so he will also destroy the world of uh, the day of the coming of the Son of Man. And Peter talks about it also in 2 Peter chapter 3, predicting the very thing that we have seen in our own days. In the first verses of that chapter, where he says that there will come in the last days scoffers who say, where is the promise of his coming? That is, where is the promise of Christ's coming? There's no evidence, there's no, uh, nothing that you can uh, refer us to that proves that the, the Christ is coming again to destroy the world. And they say, you can't prove this because when we look back over the history of the world from the very beginning, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. This is evolutionism, isn't it? All things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And Peter says, for this, they willfully are, forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. 
Peter says, they go back through the history of the world and they say all things continue as they were since the beginning, but they're willfully ignorant of the flood of Noah's day, of the proof that God does come in judgment on a wicked world and destroys it. And we know from what he did in Noah's day that he will come again. And he will destroy this heaven and earth with fire. And then he will create a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's in verse 13 of the chapter. So this this whole uh, time of Noah, the flood and the promise of God, doesn't just pertain to uh, the world of that day or to uh, the world as we see it now, but also points us to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the destruction of this world by fire. It takes us all the way then to the end of time. That covenant with Noah takes us all the way to the end of time. And we might say then that these first two covenants of God bracket history. The the mother promise begins the history of God's covenant. And the promise to Noah takes us all the way to the consummation, the fullness and the perfection of that covenant in the new heavens and the new earth, pointing us to that direct in that direction. There will be, the apostle says in Romans chapter 8, a redemption of this creation which was made subject to bondage because of us. So these, these two covenants then, these promises of God, tie together and tie the history of the world together. The next time we read about covenant is in Genesis chapters 15 and 17. And they promise of God to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 and 17 was that Abraham and Sarah would have a son. And that through that son that God would give them God would make their seed innumerable and bring them back into the land in which Abraham was a sojourner and give them that land as their inheritance. And he said to Abraham, I will be your God. I will dwell with you. I will be the God of your seed. And I will dwell with them. And he spoke other promises also in this connection. He, he spoke not only of a, a son for Abraham and Sarah, but he, he spoke of, and of an innumerable seed, but he spoke of the nations being blessed in Abraham. He talked about kings coming from Abraham and so on. So what God was doing, notice in this, was first of all, he was going back to that idea of the seed in Genesis chapter 3. I will give you a seed, he says. Isaac was that seed in the first place, but as Paul says in Galatians 3, Christ again was that seed. Christ was that seed of Abraham. 
Just as in Genesis 3, there was the seed that would bruise the head of the serpent. So here, Genesis 15 and 17, there is a a seed of Abraham in which his seed will become as innumerable as the stars of the heaven and will inherit the land in which Abraham was a sojourner. So God both ties that covenant of Abraham to what he has already said in the past and points in that covenant also to the future, again to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the covenant with Abraham then. The next time we read about the covenant is in the book of Exodus, what we call the Mosaic Covenant, and the covenant of God with the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. And here God gave the law, of course, as a schoolmaster to lead them to Christ. But notice in the first place that in that covenant, God was fulfilling promises made to Abraham. This is 400 years later, at least 400 years later. God is fulfilling promises to Abraham. He had multiplied Abraham's seed until they were as innumerable as the stars of the sky and as the sand on the seashore. He brought them to Mount Sinai and he established there at Mount Sinai his house and came to dwell among them just as he had promised to Abraham. He made them his people and himself their God just as he had promised to Abraham. And he gave them the land, just as he had promised to Abraham. So there's a look backward in that covenant to the covenant with Abraham. But there's also a look forward in that covenant. Because especially you see this in the ceremonies of the law that God gave. The tabernacle itself was a type of the church, as Paul makes very clear in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 again. The sacrifices were... Uh, uh, ordained there at Sinai. And those sacrifices had as their essence the atoning sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And there was a high priest who was a type or a shadow of Christ to come. So God both ties that covenant to the past and points again to the future, to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's fulfilling promises made to Abraham, but he's also revealing further riches of that covenant, which are still to come. And then you have the, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the covenant with David. Again, long after Israel at Sinai. Three, four hundred years or something like that. After, that, after the time of Moses and Israel at Sinai. David wanted to build God a house. The tabernacle no longer existed. David said he was going to build God a house. And God came to him through the prophet and said, No, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to give you a son to sit on your throne. And he will build my house. And that son was first of all Solomon who built the temple in the city of Jerusalem 
But you see, here again you have God fulfilling his promise to Abraham. He had said kings would come from Abraham's loins. And here that line of kings arises, beginning with David and carrying onward then through the history of the kings of Israel and Judah in the Old Testament. But God also spoke of a son to sit on his throne forever. And he was speaking again of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, there's that look backward and that look forward, fulfilling the promises made to Abraham, but revealing greater riches of fulfillment still to come in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you have the new covenant. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew 26, verse 28, at the institution of the Lord's Supper. He said to his disciples, Drink from it, all of you, this cup, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The new covenant in Christ's blood, that's the covenant that Jesus was talking about. And again, it's talked about in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 to 10. Hebrews 8, verses 6 to 10. Now he, that is Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with him, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There's the new covenant. And notice, again, how God goes back there to the covenant with Abraham. Hebrews is quoting from Jeremiah, the prophet here. Goes back to the covenant with Abraham. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And he says, this is the new covenant. I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's the covenant in Christ's blood. And it's not a new covenant in the sense that uh, it replaces the old and simply causes the old covenant to cease to exist, nor is it a new covenant in the sense that it's established to stand alongside of that old covenant so that now there are two covenants running side by side in the New Testament, one a covenant with the Jews and another a covenant with the Gentiles. But it's a new covenant in the sense 
that it fulfills the old, all those things that God had spoken of to Adam and to Noah and to Abraham and to David are coming to pass now in their spiritual form and in their spiritual reality in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the new covenant, the fulfillment of the old. The God keeping the promises he had sworn by himself to his people in the Old Testament. And finally, we see the consummation of that covenant, that new covenant in Revelation 21, verses 3 to 5. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Notice he goes back to Sinai. The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Notice how he goes back to the promise to Abraham. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. We have the consummation of the covenant. Now if you look at that whole history, you have the history of God's covenantal dealings with his people. Over a period of 1,500 years, in the time of the writing of the scriptures anyway, now it's 3,500 years at least since This all happened since God first spoke to, uh, uh, wrote down through uh, Moses the history of the creation of the world and so on. God has been speaking of his covenant and, and revealing his covenant and working out his covenant and now in this New Testament period fulfilling his covenant. This is a unifying theme in the scriptures. The historical books of the Old Testament are the history of God's covenantal dealings with his people. Or, if you will, of God and his people living together in covenantal fellowship. The Psalms are the covenant people of God, worshiping God and giving expression to their covenantal relationship with their God. We are your people. You are our God. We worship you. We pray to you. We call upon you to fulfill your promises. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and other wisdom literature, as it's called, shows us how the people of the covenant are to live with their covenant God. The prophets show us the people breaking the covenant of God. And God coming to them through the prophets and threatening severe judgments upon them. Judgments which are consistent with his Word to them in Deuteronomy, that great covenantal book written by Moses. But also, at the same time through those prophets, not only threatening judgment, but renewing the promises he had made to his people in the past. So you have these two things set side by side in the prophets. Not just judgment, but the renewing of the promises. The Gospels show us the promises being fulfilled. And so Matthew begins. Remember how Matthew begins? 
with reference to the covenant. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham and David, because they were the ones to whom God had made covenant, with whom God had made covenant. Paul. Who was Paul? The apostle to the Gentiles, fulfilling the promise of God to Abraham that all nations would be blessed in him. You have books in the New Testament written particularly for the Jewish people. Peter, perhaps, James, Hebrews. The Jews are being grafted back into the olive tree, received into the covenant of God again. Still part of that covenant people because they are, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Revelation speaks of the consummation of the covenant in the new heavens and the new earth. You have this unifying idea, this unifying theme that runs through all the scriptures. But people of God, where does that unifying idea come from? How is it that we can talk this way about the scriptures? Because this is God's word. Because this is God writing down for us in the word what he has done with his people in the past, the promises he made, how he fulfilled them, and how he continues to fulfill them even now, and how he will fulfill them and bring them to consummation in the return of the Son of Man. There's this beautiful harmony in the whole of the scriptures, a harmony that simply couldn't have been created by man. The content of the scriptures is a divine content, speaking of things which the heart of man could not have conceived. You can do this with different doctrines, but this, I think, is one that particularly reveals it to us. (coughs) Revealing, the scriptures reveal our covenant God. Speaking his promises, fulfilling his promises, giving us hope, bringing us into fellowship with himself, becoming our God, making us his people, judging us for our transgressions, but always renewing his promises and restoring us again to himself. When you look at the beauty and perfection of the scriptures, then you cannot but say, this is indeed the word of God. And if I would take anything away from these scriptures, it would be like cutting off a hand or a foot from my body. It would be ripping pages out of that last will and testament which God has written for his people and which has become effective in the death of the testator, our Lord Jesus Christ. And to add anything to this book would be like a man taking and adding to his arm, his right arm, a second hand, or adding to the riches of the promises of God, the poor, fragile foolishness of the writings of men. We hear in the scriptures the voice of the good shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ, calling us by name and saying, you are mine. 
and I am yours. We recognize that voice and we follow him. May God bless his words.